Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is Celebrity Celebrity Memoir Memoir Book Club. And ladies and gentlemen, we are reading celebrity memoirs, but not straight to you off the page like it's kindergarten, okay? We're reading it to you with a little bit of opinion, like it's fifth grade. It's an added value, much like Spark Notes. We're doing the work and then analyzing it and then handing it to you on a frickin' silver platter. And we don't ask for much in return, except for that you don't be mean to us because it's very easy to not listen. Once again, statistically, most people are not listening. (laughs) So if you love it, we love you. And I mean it, we love you. And if you don't like it, we beg you from the bottoms of our tiny little hearts to please just turn it off. Just turn it off. But if you do like us, you know what's a great way to show us you love us? The best way to show us you love us is to leave us a five-star review on good old iTunes. I know that these review reads have gotten a little lengthy and that's because sometimes we skip a week and then there's too much to catch up on. So we are going to go back to the every week agenda until we hit 1,000 reviews. So if you want us to stop reading reviews, you should review us (laughs) and then we'll hit our goal, baby. Thank you so much to my name is Taken Sad Face Sad Face. Well, I'm happy you left this review. Happy face, happy face. SSRI anals? Well, if that's what makes you serotonin-filled, dreaming of forever, you and me both, sister. Kansas molasses, my favorite kind of sandwich. Stop reading out names when we get to a thousand. Brown sugar, baby. Oh, that is sweet. I hate DT. Well, I love you and whoever you hate, I hate. B-wop, bop Adam Blodge, you're not a Blodge to me. XO Rach, I love you, XO. XO Rach, I love you, XO. Kelsey Branning, thanks for branning us this review. Van6009, hell yeah, 69. That's all. We do love you guys, and we are hearing the feedback that you're tired of hearing names, but we still want to give thanks, and we still actually want a lot of reviews because it's deeply helpful for us. But get us to a thousand and we'll stop out of love. I feel like that's a mutual fair agreement amongst lovers. (laughs) Before we get to this week's memoirist, Claire, if you wrote a memoir, what would this week's chapter be called? Write it on the high of life, baby. Reading this book, a big part of it that we'll get into is he's like just trying to have fun with his best friends. And that's like what I want to do is have fun with my best friends and then just pay rent from it. Yeah. And... I feel like I have to make a moment of gratitude now because it could come crashing down to a halt at any minute. Right now, everything in my life is exactly as I'd like it to be. Like, obviously, I'd like to be a bit richer because I want these cowboy boots I saw once and I can't afford them right now. (laughs) But I'm like, hey, I don't really do anything I don't want to do. And that's a very rare experience, I think. And so I'm trying to be like, remember these six weeks, Claire. You will never get them back for the rest of your life. But I'm in a good spot. I'm trying to just sit in that. That's nice. And not take it for granted because truly, I'm like waiting for the other shoe to drop. It's coming and it's going to curb stomp my face. I'm sure of it because why wouldn't it? Ashley, if you had a memoir, what would the chapter of this week be called? Ugh, this week's chapter would be called, Is She a Nun? (laughs) The answer would be no, she's not. (laughs) Because I think I'm going to become a nun. Okay, so I'm off dating apps fully, fully for like a couple weeks now. And I've been kind of vibing. I mean, I've been talking to people in real life, but I feel like I'm not actively looking for something right now, but I am kind of hoping something falls into my lap, but that is not how it works. So I've just kind of been not really dating. And the only dates I've been on are sort of residuals from my online dating period, which doesn't work for me because I don't have a good energy checker on the internet, you know? Remember when you told me I had bad vibrator? (laughs) Yeah. And everyone thought I said vibrator. (laughs) Yeah. The only way to successfully date online is to have a good vibrator. (laughs) (laughs) 
I do feel like I had this realization a couple of weeks ago where I was like, why don't I have a boyfriend? And it's because I haven't met anyone that I really liked because if I wanted to be dating someone, I can think of like six people in the last year that I could have made be my boyfriend. I mean, if I've learned anything from hoarders, my 600 pound life, my strange addiction, <laughs> literally anyone could be in a relationship. If I've learned anything from the group of people that I am friends with from back home, anyone could get a fiance. <laughs> Okay. I'm not saying they don't deserve a fiance. I'm just saying that anyone can be a fiance. So Ashley, <laughs> before we opened up this week's book, uh-huh. what did you know about Anthony Kiedis? Okay. So kind of a lot. Okay. I didn't know that I knew a lot about Anthony Kiedis. I knew that I definitely had a Red Hot Chili Peppers phase in high school, and I always kind of didn't understand why they got made fun of a lot. Finn Straley, who's a comedian in LA, has this bit where he goes, I get that the Red Hot Chili Peppers are bad, but why? And it always made me laugh so much because I was like, no, but why? (laughs) Like, I kind of don't know. And I feel like they get made fun of, and they're always kind of the butt of a joke. And I loved Stadium Arcadium in high school. I honestly feel like Stadium Arcadium reignited my rock fixation. I feel like I was sort of embarrassed to have certain musical tastes because I grew up in the age of, oh, you like this band? Name their three least best-selling tracks. (laughs) And so I always was scared to have certain fandoms. I wasn't really exploring my musical taste for a long time and liking Stadium Arcadium really brought me back into the rock sphere and opened me up to a lot of other artists that I really like now. But I also just knew kind of accidentally a ton about their personal lives and drug addictions and their revolving door of guitar players all that shit. I also listened to a podcast this week to refresh my RHCP knowledge called Bandsplain, which I recommend if you love just learning the whole history of a band in three hours. Claire, Mm. what did you know about Anthony Kiedis? Truly nothing. Shockingly (laughs) little. Obviously, I've always known that there is a band called Red Hot Chili Peppers. I could not name a song. That being said, if you played a song, I could sing along to a bunch of their songs once I started looking into it. But I knew that there was a man named Anthony Kiedis and I knew that his memoir contained a lot of underage sex with underage girls. I don't even think if you had said, who's Anthony Kiedis, I would have said Red Hot Chili Peppers. Interesting. One time... I went on this trip to rebuild houses after Hurricane Katrina. And part of the trip on the last night, everyone had to like present a song or a poem or a reading about how much this has meant to them. And me and my friend Maddie read Red Hot Chili Peppers lyrics. And everyone was like, wow, that was so beautiful. (laughs) Anyway, should we open these pages, dig through some scar tissue and see what we find? Yes.
Anthony Kiedis was born November 1st, 1962. And this book, Scar Tissue, came out in 2004. So he was 42 when he wrote it. I will say, reading this book, I know that we always talk about how you shouldn't write a book too young, but so much happened in his first 42 years that I was like, I don't know, this could have been three. He could have split this bitch up for us. He could have Tori Spellinged it. I would have actually preferred for the sake of this podcast if he had broken this up into six smaller books because it was a long week, my friends. So he was born in Michigan to John Michael Kiedis and Peggy Noble, two beautiful but troubled people who would be perfect parents to me. Oh my God, perfect parents. Okay. My father's eccentricity and creativity and anti-establishment attitude coupled with my mother's all-encompassing love and warmth and hardworking consistency were the optimal balance of traits for me. So his parents met and married young. His dad was like a long time ne'er-do-well. His mom kind of was shirking the strictness of an Irish Catholic upbringing. They met at 20, got married six weeks later. He abandoned her six weeks after that. He came back. There was a lot of back and forth of getting back together, leaving for a year, getting back together. And I think three or four years into their marriage, quote unquote, they got pregnant with Anthony Kiedis and had him. And almost, almost immediately, the dad bailed. The dad moved around basically everywhere. He moved out to California first, and then they moved out there to be with him. And then they ended up moving back to Michigan. The dad left and moved to London. At one point, they moved to Florida. It was just a lot of moving all over the place. Very hectic. Then the dad sort of settled in California, and Anthony would go out there for a couple weeks in the summertime and then spend the rest of the year with his mom in Michigan. And the mom started dating the dad's best friend, Scott, who was... An abusive alcoholic. Yeah, and I also... I also want to point out he would go out and stay with his dad in the summertime and I do think that Anthony Kiedis is funny and he has this one line about going out there and his dad was dealing drugs in California. His dad went out to try to become like a director actor. He was a real of the scene kind of guy and he says my dad's budding career as a director got derailed in 1966 when he ran into a cute young roller skating car hop who introduced him to pot. So he didn't realize what was going on but he would go stay with his dad. They'd be dealing drugs out of that house and he walked into a room and saw people counting money and he was like oh that room doesn't look fun because they're doing math. I like had to read that like eight times because I was like, did he mean math? And it was math. <laughs> and I was like, I agree. It is not fun when you walk into a room and everyone's just doing math. And you're like, I got to go find somewhere else to hang out. I hate math. <laughs> At the age of four, his dad hotboxed him, basically. His dad was a horrible dad. Basically, the deal with Anthony was, you can come hang out with me if you don't cause a problem. And, you know, children are like sponges, and he internalized that early. And so he was going out with him and spending a couple weeks every summer with his dad, who was living this drug-dealing, reckless, partying life, and just happened to be toting along a son. And somehow Anthony learned to just stay out of the way and it never caused trouble. But he tells a story about a time when his dad rode the back of a truck on the freeway and almost fell off. Oh, don't you worry, my dad said. But I did. That was the beginning of a theme because for many years to come, I'd be scared to death for my dad's life. But I remember having a lot of fun too. And so it was this back and forth of living in California. Anthony got there and said, this is where I belong. This is where the cool things and fun things are happening. But also it was deeply chaotic for a child. His mom is being abused and it is a really unstable and unpleasant life back in Michigan as well because of Scott. Then Scott is leaving and coming back and leaving and coming back. And eventually the mom goes to Chicago for a rendezvous with Scott and he doesn't show up. And it turns out it's because he's been arrested. She has no money to even get back. And he says that the flight attendant took pity on her and flew her back for free. She was there with him and his sister. She was with two small children stranded in Chicago. I mean, as chaotic as his father has been, I think Scott was the first experience with violence that he had in the home where he said he would come home and he never saw somebody like flat on his back puking from a hangover. And it really ended when Scott came in, chased the mom around, ripped all the phones out of the house and then went into Anthony's room to try to rip out Anthony's phone, 
with like a knife and the mom got so scared she called the police on him. I mean, that's extremely violent. It was extremely violent, really chaotic, really damaging. And then at the same time, he's idolizing this fun Hollywood life with his dad. So he goes, by third grade, I developed a real resentment towards the school administration. And as you'd expect, he's becoming kind of a troubled kid. He has this line that makes me laugh because I was definitely like this. My brother was like this. He goes, I hated them because if anything went wrong, if anything was stolen, if anything was broken, if a kid was beaten up, they would routinely pull me out of class. I was probably responsible for 90% of the mayhem. What do you think is me? Just because it was me the last 10 times? (laughs) I mean, he was really into like petty crime. I mean, he was eight. I'm not gonna call him a criminal, but he loved to steal. He loved to like break into people's backyards. He loved whatever the kind of risky off the beaten path. I will say it feels like he was just getting away with shit and there was literally no rules or structure in his life that was teaching him early that you can't do that. I feel like a lot of kids have a weird petty crime phase. A lot of kids steal shit. A lot of kids just push boundaries and then wait to get pushed back and he never got pushed back. So finally his mom meets a nice partner and they settle down and he says somewhere late in the sixth grade I decided it was time to go live with my dad. My mom was at her wit's end with me, clearly losing all control. When I wasn't given the green light to go live with them, I started to really resent her. He like did a lot of running away. I was a real runaway child. I'd get down the block and come back, but <laughs> I get that. And I think when she met this man who was such a good guy and she kind of wanted to start a new life and they moved, she said, fine, go. And he went to live with his dad. So the irony of this to me is that the mom's life became extremely stable. His two younger sisters ended up having like a pretty normal Midwestern upbringing. He left Michigan for California in 1974 and moved in with his dad. He loved it, but it was insane. He talks about the first day he got there. He's 11 years old and his dad gets him high. They're sitting around. It's his dad, him at 11 and his dad's 18 year old girlfriend. They all smoke weed. He gets really high. And then he goes, then my dad handed me an instamatic camera and said, I think she wants you to take some pictures of her. I instinctively knew that some form of skin was about to be exposed. So I said to her, what if we pull up your shirt and I'll take a picture of you? That's a good idea, but I think it might be more artistic if you just had her expose one of her breasts. My dad said, we all concurred. I took some pictures and no one felt uncomfortable about it. I feel uncomfortable. I feel uncomfortable. (laughs) You didn't ask us. If an 11-year-old says, I don't feel uncomfortable in that situation, your opinion doesn't matter. And if your dad who put you in that situation said he didn't feel uncomfortable, his opinion doesn't matter anyway. None of you guys actually have important opinions in this point because it is an uncomfortable situation and it should not have happened. This is just the first of 10 billion similar situations that really should not have happened. This commences a lifestyle where he is just his dad's sidekick. And the fact that he's 11 is completely irrelevant to them. He becomes almost like a mascot. He adored his dad and he talks about he would get the same outfits. He would make get mini versions of his dad's outfits. And his dad was like a real man about town. He was really connected to everybody in Hollywood. He was a real drug dealer. He was like the mayor of the rainbow room. Yeah. He had the best booth and he would sit and look out over the club and his name was Spider. With a Y. And people would come in and if he didn't approve you, then you would get booted. And all the major bands would come through and they knew him. At 13 or something, Anthony asked Debbie Harry to marry him. And Sonny Bono was his godfather, I guess, at this point. The father had an ex named Connie who moved on to date Sonny Bono. And so they became like surrogate parents. They were the only semi-stable adults in his life and they were still not. His dad lived in this rundown shack, essentially, in the middle of Hollywood that had this add-on deck room that was his room that I guess led to the bathroom. So when his dad would bring back parties at night, Anthony would be sleeping, trying to get some rest for school and people would be coming back and forth through his room to go to the bathroom. 
it was just like an all night party all the time. The dad never woke up in the morning and he was just fully responsible for getting himself to and from school. And he literally did. He would. It was incredible. He actually, I mean, not to jump the gun, but he got straight A's all the way through high school and ended up going to UCLA. Apparently his dad had gone to a good school and education was really important to them. And he had this innate thing where he was like, I have to get good grades. And no matter how much he was partying at night, he would get up and get himself to school. Does that believe him $5 to take a cab and get lunch? But he actually ended up going to a pretty good elementary school, even though his dad was pretty broke. They used Sonny of Sonny and Cher's address to get him into the Bel Air Middle School. He goes to a pretty decent public school. And he doesn't get along with any of the kids there. Not because he's mean, but just because he's having these experiences at night where he's at the Rainbow Room till 4 a.m. last night stopping my dad from getting into a coke-infused brawl with Motley Crue in the parking lot. He's like, I have nothing in common with (laughs) 11-year-olds. Literally at all. So he was just kind of minding his own business at school, honestly getting pretty good grades, sometimes stirring shit up because he was a shit stirrer. But overall, his life was the nightlife. He was his dad's sidekick. How much of a sidekick was he? Well, let's share this story. One night, shortly before my 12th birthday, we were all at the Rainbow Room. It was him, his dad, and his dad's new girlfriend, Kimberly, a beautiful, soft-spoken 18-year-old. I was high as a little kite on a quaalude, and I got up the courage to write my father a note. I know this is your girlfriend, but I'm pretty sure she's up for the task if it's okay with you. Can we arrange a situation where I end up having sex with Kimberly tonight? So then his dad, quote, brokered the deal in a flash. She was game, so we went back to the house and he said, okay, here's the bed, there's the girl, do what you will. And then he like stood there and like watched him lose his virginity. He goes, it was a fun thing to do and I never felt traumatized then. But I think subconsciously, it was probably something that always stuck with me in a weird way. Uh, Probably. I did wake up the next morning going, geez, what the hell was that? I was never able to do it again though. Whenever I would say, remember that time with Kimberly, could we do it again? And his dad would go, oh no, 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 that was a one-time thing. So this is an 11-year-old boy having sex with his dad's 18-year-old girlfriend. Wait, okay, trigger warning, underage sex. Oh yeah, trigger warning. So yeah, this is an 11-year-old boy having sex with his dad's 18-year-old girlfriend as his first time. I don't know what to say. And I actually do want to take a minute and talk about the rest of this book. Going in, the thing I knew about this book was that he has a lot of sex with like teenage girls as an adult. And I think it's bad. I think it's bad for grown men to have sex with like 16-year-old girls and 14-year-old girls. I also feel like he has such a fucked up, insane life. I'm just like, I don't know, man, at this point. So before we go any further into this, I just want to say in no way was what he's doing okay. This behavior ran so rampant in this culture. It happened so often to him and by him in this book. So just know, even though we don't take the time with each instance to call it out, we are not okay with it. And I don't know, I guess he should be in jail. Okay. So I want to say something that I don't think people are going to like that much, but I do think that a lot of these underage relationships were either encouraged or given permission by the parents involved. It is really fucked up. The culture was an absolute disaster. Everything was a fucking train wreck mess of this was happening. And it was almost never an unknown to the parents, to other people involved. It was insane. And I do think that the overall takeaway from this is that it was a different time and the culture has changed and that is literally not okay. And I'm glad we look back on it and are repulsed. And I'm not giving him the pass and I don't think it's okay, but I am saying that shit was fucked. Yeah, like I don't think it's good that he had sex with a 14-year-old girl when he was like 23. But at the same time, I'm like, I get why he didn't think it was wrong because he's a product of his culture. And it was the 70s in LA where at 11 years old, he had sex with an adult. That was brokered by another adult who was his caretaker. I just feel like, and we'll get more into it as we meet the women he dates or the girls he dates, but it reminds me of like pre-industrial times where they don't have a sense of like adolescence. I really feel like being an adult's a binary and it's like, well, if you want to hang out with the adults, you're an adult then. Like you take care of yourself, you get yourself to school, you figure out how you eat. 
And if not, you have to go home and live with your mom in Michigan. But all of the parents, there were all these hippies who were like, just come hang. Nobody took the time to raise children. Mm-hmm. And then by default, the children were adults. Yeah. And then they never got a sense that other children were children because they were adults at 12. So I think it's bad and I'm sorry for all involved and I think Anthony Kiedis has caused a lot of pain in a lot of people's lives. I do think though if we sit and hate him every time we're not gonna this is a 500 page book and we have to rock and roll babies. (laughs) Yeah that's what I want to say is I don't think it's okay and I'm not saying that there wasn't other people getting traumatized in his wake. So he is doing drugs pretty regularly. He's going out with his dad all the time. He isn't having sex besides that experience for the most part for a while, but he is obviously more experienced than his other classmates. Like there is this one time where he sneaks off with a girl to hook up in a closet and everyone else in school is just like, what the fuck are you even talking about? Should we talk about our favorite name drop of the whole book? Yes. He's now 12, 13, right? He goes, around that time, my hormones started raging. I had a wonderful experience of being babysat one night by Cher. I was in the eighth grade and still hanging out with Sonny and Connie from time to time. And for some reason, they got jammed up. So Cher volunteered to watch me for the night. We camped out in our bedroom, having a heart-to-heart talk for hours on end, really getting to be friends. After a while, it was time for bed. Because it was a large house and I might get spooked being alone, Cher let me crash in her bed until Sonny and Connie came to pick me up. In my mind, there was a bit of tension, not that I was going to make any moves on this woman. Then Cher got up and went to the bathroom to get ready for bed. It was dark in the bedroom and it was light in the bathroom, so I watched her take off her clothes, all the while feigning to be asleep. There was a woman's naked body. It was long and slender and special and thrilling. She put on her nightgown, walked back into bed, and then they fell asleep in the bed together. I'm sorry, but even that is like deeply inappropriate on Cher's part. Yeah. You cannot be getting naked in front of an eighth grade boy and then sleeping in a bed with him. That is so fucking insane. Nobody has any boundaries. It really is like the 70s in LA and there's not a boundary to be found. Why were Sonny and Cher babysitting somebody else's kids? The thing that threw me off about this is why was he getting babysat? Why was this a kid that was going to clubs till 4am with his dad regularly and he was doing drugs constantly? His dad was giving him drugs all the time, but they were like, oh, he can not be left alone. I guess his dad must have been using the house for something else. His dad must have needed the house for a deal or something. Something must have been going on. He would have been safer alone. I mean, he has sex with this 24-year-old girl named Becky, who was an ex-girlfriend of his dad's best friend. At this time, he's 12, 13. When he is having sex, it's with adult women. So about this time, too, his dad decides to get back into acting. He's getting into it seriously. And like father, like son, since his dad's acting, he's acting. And as we know, if you're a child actor, you're going to get roles. If you're a child living in LA and he's full of spunk, he's actually booking a ton of stuff. I feel like it is important to point out at this time that the dad changes his name for acting. His name is Blackie Dammit. So Anthony needs to change his name to match his dad's name because he's obsessed with his dad and will do everything to match him. And since his dad is Blackie, he is Cole. So we've got Blackie and Cold Dammit on the streets of Los Angeles. And I will say... What will you say? Anthony respects a name change. His dad was never referred to as John again for the rest of the book. Once he said, my name is Blackie Dammit, <laughs> Anthony Kiedis is always like, my dad Blackie. <laughs> so also in eighth grade. Sorry, we'll move past eighth grade, but... <laughs> it was an eventful year. You know, some of us got our first pimple or first period. He love at first sight with cocaine. He went to a party with his dad's ex-girlfriend, Connie. I guess there was coke somewhere. They thought it'd be funny to get him to do it, and he did it. And he loved it. I feel like he was not chasing drugs as a kid. He was just kind of doing whatever was handed to him, but he was like, this is the one that when it's around, I'm I'm in. And then he says because of cocaine, he got led to heroin, which was actually quite a rare drug at this time. He assumed it was a pile of cocaine. 
And they were like, don't do that one line. But then they left him alone to party. And so he did the line. This is when they leave him alone. Why couldn't they just leave him with a naked share? Instead, they left him with a pile of heroin. He goes, cocaine inadvertently led me to heroin. I was 14 with Connie one day when she took me for a ride to Malibu. Whoosh. And then he talked about how great it was. It was like coke, but better. And at this point, his dad is getting super immersed in acting. He says the problems began when he started to become his characters. And then they reached a boiling point when he got cast as a, okay, it says transvestite. I don't know if that means drag or a trans person, but that's the word he uses. So he starts dressing as a woman. And I think Anthony couldn't handle the hit to the masculinity. They got into this huge fight and there was no bloodshed, but it changed their dynamic forever. So then high school, it's hard to believe it, but he has not yet been in high school. He goes to his first day of high school and they call him into the office and they're like, we know you're using a false address. You don't go to this high school. Here's your actual high school. This sends him to Fairfax High, which we know of from Demi Moore. We know of it from tons of later celebrities. Fairfax High is just like the public school of Hollywood. And boy, oh boy, did a lot of people go through Fairfax High. So first he meets Michael Balzeri and they click. They are peas in a motherfucking pod. This is what he says about him. Mike was painfully shy and insecure and much more sheltered than I had been. So I assumed the alpha role in the relationship. This would be the dynamic that would continue for a long time. And it would be a beautiful thing because we shared so much together. However, it would also carry an aspect of resentment for him because I was kind of a bastard and a mean-spirited bully at the times along the way. So Mike Balzeri might not ring a bell to you, but what if I said flee? I really wish that he had included how Mike became flee. It happened actually on a trip that Anthony was not part of. And I will say one thing about this book is if Anthony wasn't there, it is not in the book. (laughs) We'll get into it more later. But one of the things that shocked me most was the single-mindedness of this memoir in literally only telling his story. Yeah, he does not mention anyone else's story. And it does honestly make me extremely curious. Flea has a book called Acid for the Children. And I do think it would be really interesting to get his side of the story. So he becomes really great friends with Mike. And I had to say hearing about their friendship is really adorable. They tell the story about busing up to Mammoth to go skiing for the weekend and they sleep in like a laundromat. There is something very sweet about the fact that they are truly best friends. I have a real thing for best friends. I love to see it. And so these stories were so cute and two kids doing hijinks and they were definitely more destructive than I ever was with any of my friends. The story about the ski trip, they first of all went up on the ski trip with no plan and they have Flea's mom's credit card to rent skis with and they try to rent skis and they're like, we cannot authorize this credit card payment unless... Flea's mom is here. So Anthony goes outside, borrows a parka from some woman, comes back in with a ski mask and a parka and goes, you have to give my son these skis. I can't believe you pulled me off the slopes for this. And the woman is so frightened by this lady yelling. They laugh and laugh and laugh. And I was like, that is funny. <laughs> the other important thing about his freshman year of high school is he also became friends with Hillel Slovak. Not part of any of these early stories, but he is a part of some of their random hijinks. Within a few minutes of hanging out with Hillel, I sensed that he was absolutely different from most of the people I'd spend time with. I usually feel like the leader in most relationships with kids my age because of all the crazy experiences that I'd had as a kid. But I immediately knew that Hillel was at least my equal and in fact knew a lot of things that I didn't. He understood a lot about music and he was a great visual artist and he had a sense of self and calm about him that was just riveting. They had this bond. The three of them would hang out. Anthony, also I want to point out, was kind of growing apart from his dad. Whereas the first couple years he lived in Los Angeles, he was just with his dad every single night. Now that he had these two close friends, he was spending the night at their houses a lot. He really enjoyed the stability of having a home with a parent and a bedroom. It's funny because even though his dad was partying a lot, I do think it's very natural for teenagers to like break away from their parents. And so even though you'd be like, why would you break away from your dad? He let you do whatever you wanted. You still at some point want to hang out with kids your own age Mm -hmm. and have like those experiences. So between that, between the acting, him and his dad were slowly distancing and his dad was getting super into being an actor. And so he had cut back on drug dealing. They had 
had a little bit less money. It was tense. A lot of their money was coming from Anthony's success as an actor. He had gotten a national Coca-Cola commercial, for example, that he said paid the bills for like a year. So one of Mike and Anthony's favorite activities around this time was to jump off of stuff into pools. They would break into apartment complexes and houses and jump off of balconies and roofs into swimming pools. And they were high as shit when they were doing this. And at one point, they jump off of a fifth story building into a teardrop-shaped pool. Anthony misses the mark, lands on his heels, and shatters his back. Horrible, scary. There's so many things that happen to him physically that I'm like, who dies? If he didn't die, then who dies? A lot of people later. But <laughs> this is another example. So he's home recuperating. He like breaks out of the hospital. Lee like bails him out. They run away. He goes back and gets better at his dad's apartment. His dad has a friend who's 24 who he says is a successful actress who would come over a couple times a day and have sex with him while he was on his back in a cast. It was insane. And then there is a mega drug bust. Turned out that my dad had called a prostitute to come over for a few nights earlier, but when she got there, she wasn't my dad's cup of tea. To be a good sport, he offered her some cocaine, but she stormed out and called the cops and told them that Blackie might be the hillside strangler who was terrorizing LA at the time. So he gets arrested... When he comes back, he has to get rid of all of the drugs. They don't have any money. There's a lot of fights. Things get very tense between the two of them. They're fighting over things like sandwiches. They're down to almost nothing to eat. His dad wants a bigger cut of what Anthony is making from acting. And Anthony's also not even really interested in acting. He's like completely cut back on it. He's so disinterested. And the dad has started imposing rules for the first time. He suddenly got very strict and was like, you have to be home by midnight. And he would lock all the doors at midnight. He would seal the windows shut. There was no getting in after midnight. And Anthony had to sleep in the yard at one point. He just decides that he's not going to do it anymore. And Anthony, at 16 years old, moves out and crashes with a friend who he knows who dropped out of school and has an apartment. And it's not a pretty sight when his dad sees him moving out. He's like, what are you doing with all this stuff? And he's like, I'm taking my stuff. And he's like, no, that stuff belongs to the house. So he moves out at 16 with not a dollar or a t-shirt to his name. Yeah, luckily him and Mike have developed a lot of methods of stealing. So he re-ups his belongings pretty quickly. They have this whole method of stealing from grocery stores. And he did eat kind of well for a little bit. (laughs) They, as a duo, he's like not going to his dad's clubs anymore, but they get really into the punk scene in LA. So it's the late 70s at this point and punk is really starting and they're going to all the rooms, but they're kind of outsiders. You know what I mean? They're watching X and the Circle Jerks and Black Flag and China White. The list could go on and on. The energy was unbridled, more creative and exciting and bombastic than anything anybody had ever seen. And so they're into this, but everything's too cool for them. And he says, one of the reasons we didn't plunge feet first into this scene was that in some ways we were still model students at Fairfax. At least I was. It was a strange dichotomy. I smoked tons of pot, took pills and drank on the weekends, but it never got out of control. I never missed school. It was important to me to be a straight-A student. I rebelled by getting good grades. It is really interesting that he was almost a straight-A student through the end. Now that he's moved out of his dad's house and is just crashing at this apartment, he still is making it such a priority to go to school and do well to the point where he has a teacher who takes some shit out on him and he really loses his mind about it. And it is very indicative of his moral code. He like overreacts, but he's not always wrong. But I think it goes back to that same thing of I stole nine times, but if I was innocent on the 10th, how dare you accuse me? And it's their way of never taking responsibility for the pattern of their actions and feeling so indignant. So he gets into UCLA and he goes, but none of his friends are really in college. Him and his high school girlfriend named Haya, who is a conservative Jew, her parents hate him because he's not Jewish. Yeah. And that's the only reason. (laughs) I'm sure that they hated him because he's not Jewish because I have parents that don't want me to date someone who's not Jewish. And I do break that rule exclusively. I will say if I was a parent who wanted my child to date someone Jewish and they were dating someone who is not only not Jewish, but also essentially homeless, a literal drug addict, punk sex fiend, I would be like, 
Well, no. <laughs> Isn't there a different chicks that you could find? <laughs> At this point, he's going to UCLA, but he's heavy into drugs. He is now shooting up cocaine. You heard that right. Shooting up. Trigger warning. Drug stuff. I had never in my life heard of someone shooting cocaine. I thought, I'm not narky. I've heard it all. Turns out he is shooting with a syringe cocaine. He has this intense relationship with this woman, Hyatt. And I bring it up because she is the first of many women. He calls her a soulmate. They have this passionate relationship. At one time they get in a fight and he cuts his wrists and puts the blood all over his mouth and does blood kisses on her car to like win her over and it works. And that's really like a template for the other relationships he gets into. They're super intense. None of his friends are working. He's addicted to drugs and he starts getting all these dead end jobs that he, he gets fired from every couple weeks. By the next fall, he's no longer a student at UCLA. And while he was doing his first year at UCLA, Hillel had always been playing guitar. He taught Flea the bass and they started a band called What Is This? And he, for fun, started asking if he could introduce them. So he would go out, he would do a fun little bit up top, introduce the band and then shred the dance floor. It really all comes to a head though. He's getting so into coke. He says, around this time, I met a punk rock girl who asked me why I would shoot cocaine when for $20 I could shoot up speed and be high for two days. He also starts getting into heroin, which is becoming slightly more prevalent on the scene. He is spending all of his money. He's not paying rent anymore to his buddy who he initially moved in with. That guy kicks him out. Him and Mike are now both homeless. He gets fired from his job that he had gotten luckily at a graphics design company. Him and Haya had broken up. So it's just him and Flea, homeless, jobless, and they don't give a fuck. They're like, perfect. Why would we need to sleep? At night, there's parties. Yeah, and that day, you're awake. So they don't even give a shit. He really gets into the punk scene. He gets a mohawk. He's running around in a paisley smoking jacket. He does think he invented the mohawk. He's always had this very specific sense of style that really defines who he is and how he's feeling at the time. Like every time he gets a haircut or like a notable hair change, it is heavily noted in this book about how he made that decision and how it affected the next couple of years. Hillary says, the Mohawk gave me a new persona and a new energy. Even though I didn't have a place to live or a job, it didn't matter because I have this new set of armor and a good feeling about myself. <laughs> Let me tell you, as someone who has gotten a blowout, I know what it is to say this hair, this hair can save me from anything. But at this point, Flea and Hillel are really into music. Flea actually auditions and gets a part in the band Fear, which is a pretty big band as the basis. This is the summer of 1982. He's rocking along. He has no direction in his life. And he hears the message, was the hottest song that summer and it began dawning on him that you don't have to be Al Green or have an incredible Freddie Mercury voice to have a place in the world of music. Rhyming and developing a character were another way to do it. So their friend Gary Allen was like, why don't you three, this dynamic trio, Hillel, Anthony, and Flea, do a song for this performance? I don't really understand why they were invited to do like one single song. So they get together and the three of them write one song it's like a joke song and they go out and perform it and it crushes. They have so much energy. They have so much camaraderie. They're doing like half music, half comedy. I mean, it's literally a song. So they couldn't have been up there for, for more than five minutes. It creates a commotion. And so then they get booked to do other stuff. Someone's like, can you come back with two songs? And they're like, oh, we'll do a second song. They all end up moving in together and the three of them live in this house. They're all doing drugs galore. The drug use is getting kind of out of control for Hillel and Anthony. But he says the house became a beehive of musical activity. Hillel would always be playing guitar. I'd come home and Flea would be out on the porch playing. He probably should have been practicing his downstrokes with a pick for fear the band, but instead he'd be coming up with these soulful, emotional funk grooves. I'd sit there and listen and interject. Yeah, that's the one. I can work with that. And then I'd run to my room, get my pad of paper, and we'd write a song. Says that's what separates us from other bands is that everything we have comes out of the jam. Okay. So he is not only singing, but he also writes all the lyrics. And it's important because growing up when he was a straight edge student, his favorite class was always English. And he actually calls out two or three different English teachers who 
would take him after class and be like, listen, you're good at this. Keep going. He's big on poems. They're picking up steam. They go from one gig to the next. They keep having something new booked and they're getting written up. I guess because they were so in the scene and they're always going out and partying. He says there was a lot of blind items about them and they started getting hype around the music. They even got to open for Oinga Boinga, which was a band that they knew at the amphitheater. They opened for 4,000 people. Knowing people is so important and the fact that they knew these other rock stars who were like, come open for me. It is important. There's always been a version of clout. If you're around the scene, and you're fun and people know you and you're a name, they're going to book you. Hillel moves out with a girlfriend. It's just Flea and Anthony. They bring in some guy who gets sick of living with them so he kicks them both out. They're like fully homeless. Flea and Anthony at this point are just like two bosom buddies vagabonds. They move into this apartment that they're essentially squatting in and they keep getting evicted and at a certain point the landlord takes their door off and they just keep living there. When she finally calls the police on them, they moved to an office building. And like, not only do they live in this office building, but all their friends live there too. They all just like live in this office building. Yeah, with no shower. They don't give a fuck. They're playing this music. One of the concerts they get is at the Kit Kat Club and it becomes infamous because it's the first concert they ever do where they decide to put all their junk in a sock and just go play naked. This catches the heart of one Lindy Goats. He signs them immediately. They cut a demo. According to Anthony, the demo sessions were by far the most productive and inspired recording that we've ever done. In the last 20 years, we've never once hit a moment where there was as much magic and oneness happening. And I just want to clarify the members of the band because it changes rather often. So at this point, we have Anthony Kiedis, lead singer, frontman. We have Flea on bass. We have Hillel on guitar. And we have Jack Irons, who was the what is this drummer on drum. So it's essentially what is this with Anthony Kiedis in it too. Things are going great. Anthony has a reason to live. He's still doing so many drugs. And I have to say at this point, I'm not going to stop for multiple reasons and get into the in-depth descriptions he gives of the highs and the lows of doing drugs or one of the 32 stories he tells per chapter about copping drugs. He really loves to like give directions. He's like, so then you go downtown and you take a left. There you're going to see an alleyway. There's going to be a Mexican family who lives in a motel. They're going to seem nice. Don't look at them. (laughs) The flamingo has left the building. They'll give you two winks. For somebody who was regularly going on like speedball week-long binges, you have a real good memory. I could not tell you what I did last week. This man remembers every time he bought drugs, every time he did drugs. He remembers what you were wearing. He remembers what you said. He remembers where they were going. He remembers the type of car. Every single time we sit down to do this podcast and we say, what was the title of your memoir last week? I'm like, what the fuck did I do last week? Also at this point, he has his next girlfriend. Jennifer Bruce. She is a cool fashion chick on the scene. Also... 17. He's 21 at this point, though, so I'll give it to him. I didn't think that's reasonable. He says that she had the coolest style of anyone he had ever met. They were doing drugs together all the time. It was a bad relationship. I mean, she was showing up with axes to his house. He would go missing for days on end, show up seven days later at her parents' house, sell the toaster for drug money. It was not a good relationship. He also, at this point, goes on a little vacation with Lee to Europe because his dad decided that he had earned his rite of passage to London. There's this really cute story that I loved. He had disappeared for days with a Danish girl and Flea was so upset with him. And then he got them both these two tin cups that they put on their jackets and then they were the brother's cup. And I was like, they are the brother's cup. So things are going good. He says, in the space of five months, we had made a dent in the LA music scene. We'd gotten written up in the LA Times and we were playing some respectable venues like Club Lingerie. The more prominent we became, the more leaving started to sweat flee about being in two bands. 
Lee Vang was the fear guy. So Flea ends up quitting fear. And they get this guy, Lindy. He gets them a lawyer. The lawyer is like, I'm not going to take a dollar until you guys make some money. He had signed grades like Frank Sinatra. Sounds like a real upstanding guy. Frank Sinatra's lawyer. A real good dude, I'm sure. (laughs) So they go on this vacation. They come back. Lindy has gotten them a deal. They sign with EMI Records. They're so fucking excited, except for there's a fly in the ointment. The fly in the ointment is what's all this then? Also got a record deal. What did you just call them? I call them what's all this then? Can I say something? Uh Uh-huh. You can't take an already arbitrarily (laughs) and vaguely named band and then like make a joke because that just gets confusing to the listeners. You have to call the band the band's name. The band, they're called Who? That's actually a band. It's not the Who. (laughs) Oh, what's up with this? Stop it. Call them the the right band name. (laughs) What is it? (laughs) The band name. What is it? (laughs) What band name's on first? Anyway... (laughs) What is this? Got a record deal. So this is the band that is Hillel, Flea, and Jack Irons, the drummer. And Hillel and Jack decide to go with what is this? Whereas Anthony Kiedis and Flea are fully committed to the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And it causes a literal rift in that now there are these two half bands that exist. And Anthony is distraught. He cannot fathom making Red Hot Chili Peppers with someone else. He goes, okay, my life is over. My cause is lost. There's nowhere to go. When Flea said to me, we're going to have to get two other guys. And I said, huh? Other guys? Is that possible? And he goes, yeah, I know other guys. And then they just have auditions. Yeah. So they end up meeting another Jack, who is the guitar player. Jack Sherman. Jack Sherman is their new guitar player. And then they meet a guy named Cliff for the drums. The chemistry is not quite what they had before. I mean, they were three childhood best friends and then their other friend who they had known for a long time. And now they have two new guys in the band. One of them, Jack Sherman, is a bit of a stick in the mud. I have to wonder if he really is because I do not know that Anthony Kiedis is a very reliable narrator. He says that he's like a real dork and then he quotes him. He's like, our first step was to make a record and then go out on tour. And then he claims that Jack said, oh wow, making a record, that'll be neat. I do think he's really point dextering the shit out of him, but I also think that based on some of the fights they get into later, it's like, do you want to be a rock star or not, Jack? Like he could have joined an orchestra. At this point, Flea also kind of gets sober. He gets really into straight edgeness. But Anthony and his friend Bob, who comes up a lot, they're going off the deep end. So they make this first record with EMI. They get Andy Gill, who's someone they admire to produce it. And it really was not the right choice. Andy Gill was all about making a radio hit and they wanted to make something that, you know, came from the jam, all about the vibes. Once again, I get where Anthony's coming from and I also get where he's super wrong. He is tasked to make a money-making record. So Andy is trying to produce a money-making record and Anthony obviously never cared about the money, but that's literally just not how it works. Andy Gill started to go about this business of pre-production with Cliff and Jack and Flea and me. But it made no sense to me. I didn't even really know what the hell a producer even did. It was a weird, uncomfortable situation for me and the pressure started affecting me. I went on horrible drug binges, disappeared for days. It usually involved shooting coke because I had gotten a few good coke connections. And he was like, at this point, my coke connection wouldn't even let me in his own house. He came up with a pulley system where I had to scream up to the top of the apartment building. He put the drugs in a can and lowered it down on a string. So like, that's where Anthony was at mentally. He was 23 years old. And drug dealers didn't trust him. (laughs) I think we need to take that into consideration when we think about his opinion on a professional who had a job producing and Anthony didn't even know what a producer did. Yeah, I'm just saying I get where the growing pains were. And I think that he overreacted with his anger. But I also get that he wanted to do a specific thing and it was his band. There are many sides. <laughs> this is also when he gets really into heroin because his girlfriend Jennifer doesn't like it when he's like a coked out maniac. So he starts using the heroin to like edge down from cocaine and him and Jennifer start doing heroin together. So the first album comes out. It's not a smash success, 
The album was released and it wasn't something to celebrate. I felt like we had landed between two peaks in the Valley of Compromise. I wasn't ashamed of it, but it was nothing like our demo tape. Still, our take was, okay, this is our record and let's keep marching on. So I feel like in the compromise, it wasn't even a commercial hit after all of that commercializing and they didn't like it. So they go on tour and this is how Red Hot Chili Peppers kind of got famous. They were a nonstop touring band. The reason Red Hot Chili Peppers became what they became, it wasn't just the records. It was the groundswell of fandom. They had more people coming out for the shows than they did buying records. Yeah. They did 60 shows in 68 days across the US and they were in the back of a van. He also is one of the luckiest men on earth. During the Christmas break in their tour schedule he went out to visit his mom in Michigan I guess he didn't have heroin on him so he went to a local bar to get as drunk as he possibly could and on his way home from the bar he was like my eyes were getting sleepy so I decided to just take a quick nap (laughs) he was like it was a straight road I thought if I just rested for a few minutes then I could wake back up and be a good driver he did not pull over he did fall asleep and flip off the road where he was like trapped in the car and his brains were like released from his skull (laughs) I think his like brain mush was out out. he's like luckily Somebody drove by two minutes later and it turned out to be a paramedic who called the hospital and I was fine in a couple weeks. For him to like have survived, that is insane. And Flea, meanwhile, is worried that he's going to die. Jack was like, why are you in such a bad mood? And Flea goes, you'd be in a bad mood too if you always thought your friend was about to die. He goes, I didn't know they were worried about me till this year. This year being the year of publication of the memoir. Jesus Christ. Even though the album wasn't a success and it sounds like a grueling tour schedule, this was like the happiest time of his life. He goes, we felt that we were the greatest, most successful band in the world. We didn't even look at bands who sold lots of records and played in arenas as more successful. I wasn't one of those kids who grew up dreaming of gold records. To me, my life was what was in front of me. And that was going on this tour in America in a blue Chevy van. Everywhere we showed up, there were people and they cared and we rocked them out and we gave them everything. These are the things that really endear me to him. I mean, he just loves doing shit with his best friends. Same, dude. But tensions with Jack are growing. He says at one point, Jack taped off part of the stage because he thought that Anthony was specifically trying to unplug his equipment with his wild, crazy dancing. And I do think that that story is indicative of Jack being a fucking nerd. But I also do see how if you were a serious musician and this idiot was just up there spinning around like a top and unplugging your instruments all the time, you'd be like, please stop. Anthony's response was, you can't control the dance. You can't control the dance when you're doing that. You're a douchebag apologist. I am kind of a douchebag apologist because I do think that Jack joined this band with a clear vibe. And I don't think that coming in and trying to change that is the right call. I think that if you're a serious musician who wants to like get up on stage and like be serious about your shows, this was the wrong band to join. And I think that that was very clear from the beginning and he still did it. I guess I don't think that that was true of anybody else in the band except for Anthony. I don't know that if we read Flea's memoir, it would be like, this band was about fucking around. I think it would be like, we were all serious musicians. Anthony was our lead guy. He was all charm and chaos. I think Anthony was chaotic and the rest of the band was serious. Anthony is the only member of the band who never got an offer to be in a different band. Yeah, completely. I did <laughs> notice that and I wanted to talk about the fact that he's the only one who doesn't have a side project ever. It's this or it's nothing. <laughs> he was never a musician before. He's not a musician without it. But his manic energy is what electrifies the crowd and created the groundswell of interest around the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Like in that first performance when they were on that tiny stage and he just did a backflip, that's what lit the room on fire. And that's why they became a conversation and started getting more gigs. Fair enough. He's also cheating on Jennifer a ton. He goes, at this point in my life, I had no morals, even though I never stopped loving Jennifer. And I think about her every day and call her whenever I could. 
I had no problem cheating on her. So here's another thing. Beyond just knowing every detail of his drug life, he also details every hookup. Here's what I want to say. He doesn't detail every hookup. He details like his top 50 sexual partners. <laughs> How many times in this book do you think he says, at that point, it was the most incredible sexual experience of my life. This was the most spiritual sexual experience of my life. I had never reached the depths of sexuality the way I did with this woman in Kentucky whose name I don't really know. Another thing about his lyrics that you'll notice when you go on a Red Hot Chili Peppers binge after listening to this episode is that Anthony Kiedis is one of the horniest people on earth. I mean, obviously he was like raped as a child. He has like a fucked up sexual idea. But here's what I want to say. Imagine reading this book and one being one of the sexual conquests he describes in detail. But then also imagine being somebody who had had sex with him and not being in the book. Because it's not like he names the 50 best times he had sex. He names the 50 best women he had sex with. And imagine not being a top 50 sexual partner of somebody. He has a really fucked up view of women and sex. His favorite sexual experiences in this book, he outlines from not start to finish, like from the time he lays eyes on the woman to finish. But he like masks it in this spirituality jargon. It's always like, we connected soul to soul that day when she gave me a BJ in the parking lot. <laughs> you're like, yeah, that's my favorite way of showing love, giving a head to a stranger. So he is hooking up with a lot of women on the road. One of the women is famously the 14-year-old. He calls her a Marilyn Monroe type. The next day he finds out her dad is a police detective and she is 14. And he goes, so we just had sex one more time. And then I sent her back to her dad. And I was like, what the fuck? Every woman he meets, he's never met a woman who had such a sexual appetite. And I'm like, well, do you remember the last woman? She did too. You have to be lining them up in exact order or what? They get back from tour and they're like, this whole thing with Jack, the vibe is off. And so they fire him. And who comes back? Hillel. Our boy Hillel. In 1985, Hillel rejoins the band. They go ahead on working on their second album, this time they get a guy named George Clinton to produce it. George Clinton is a very famous man. Yes. And the drugs are getting much worse. So Hillel and Anthony are strung out as shit. He's doing so much heroin with Jennifer and this new friend of his, Kim. Kim, I don't know who she is. I don't know where she came from. She just like is Anthony's new girl best friend. She's a lesbian and she never gets mad. And she's also addicted to heroin. So like they're fast friends. He's like, she had such a good vibe. I could steal from her and then she'd be like, don't worry about it. <laughs> they were just living life on the edge of death at all times. And Jennifer was insanely jealous of Kim. Jennifer was convinced that Anthony and Kim were hooking up with reason. He'd be like, I could see where she was coming from because him and Kim became roommates. He's like, sometimes she would come over and break into the window and me and Kim would be naked spooning in bed. But it wasn't a sex thing. It was a heroin thing. One time he's like, one time we were sitting in the car and Jennifer came knocking at the window and started freaking out. I might have had Kim's tit in my mouth at the time. But it wasn't a sex thing. It was just, I just wanted to see him. <laughs> anyway, Jennifer was always freaking out. That crazy, crazy girl. Women are crazy. An interesting fact about the music industry at this point is so they go in to cut their second demo. So this is the demo they'd send to George Clinton and they're giving $5,000 and Anthony goes, that feels like a lot of money just to cut one demo. And then he finds out that they had earmarked $2,000 for them to spend on drugs. They spent 1500 of the $2,000 in the first day. But just the fact that that would be built into the budget of a professional company feels crazy to me. So the drug thing is going bad. Anthony is missing shows. He's showing up late for stuff. 
It is kind of a fucking mess, but they also lay down their second record, Freaky Styly. He goes, despite all our drug use, the writing for the second album was going well. I would watch Hillel and Flea play together, and then I'd realize that music was an act of telepathy, that if you were standing next to your soulmate with your guitar in your hand, you with a bass, you could know what that other guy was thinking and communicate through playing. They're working with George Clinton. They're living in Detroit for a month. They put down the song. It's going great. Also, he finds out that when they were on tour, Jennifer had cheated on him with a guy from a band called Fishbone. And this is Anthony being king reasonable again he calls up chris from fishbone and chris is like you're not gonna come after me are you and anthony goes i'm not gonna come after you but you're not my friend and stay the fuck away from me he breaks up with jennifer kicks her out she ends up sleeping on his doormat for weeks at a time waiting for him to take her back he finally takes her back and then they end up breaking up again i mean that was a mess after they break up he goes on like one of the most wild binges of his life and it's so bad he's missing practices he's missing shows he's missing gigs and he actually gets kicked out of the band hillel and Flea tell him that he is out. And his telling is always very reasonable. He goes, I understand you have to do what's best for the band and I just quietly left. That's his telling. Obviously, he doubles down on his bender and he's always downtown. He's getting fucked up. Their second album, Freaky Styly, had actually done pretty well relative to the first album and they were nominated for an award by LA Weekly. He wasn't going to be part of it, obviously, because he'd been kicked out of the band, but he's downtown, coincidentally, the night of the awards. He's copping drugs and he sees the theater and he wanders in and he's watching from the back of the theater. The band wins the award and they all go up and he's like, I cannot believe that they didn't even mention me. It's like, I'm gone. And it was like a real like, fuck my life moment where he's on like a three month long heroin and coke binge. He's homeless. He doesn't have a girlfriend. He's been kicked out of his band and he's watching his band collect the fruits of his labor. So he does end up calling his mom and he asks for money for a plane ticket home because he's like, you're not going to believe this, but I'm actually a pretty bad heroin addict. I do think she's like, what? You? No. We have not mentioned the mom in a while. And I do think it's interesting how not present she was for a lot of this. Like when he left his dad's house in high school and moved out at 16, what level of awareness did she have? I don't know. And it's also interesting that when he's living with his mom at the beginning of his life, we're still so aware of who his dad is as a person. He's this traveling singer, writer, actor who's part of the club scene and cool. You never really know who his mom is as a person. She's never really more than just a mom. Whereas his dad is this larger than life character that you really get a good sense of. Well, his mom is literally just a mom and his dad is everything but a dad. At the time of writing, he's now 42. He must know that his mom has a personality, but he doesn't think it's interesting to like write about it. So he has this plane ticket to go home. He doesn't do it. He ends up changing the ticket a couple of times. This becomes obviously an enormous pattern, but when he decides to get sober, he'll always get sober like later. And so when he finally is ready to go to Michigan, they're driving and they get pulled over and he gets searched and he almost gets thrown in jail for the rest of his life, honestly. He has a ton of heroin on him. The cop sees a Star of David on his shoe, which he has in honor of Hillel. The cop happened to be Jewish and let him go and was just like, get your shit cleaned up, dude. He could have been thrown in prison probably forever from this heroin possession. And now he's just on his way to Michigan. So he goes to Michigan and he expects to detox with methadone. They get there, they drive up to a methadone clinic and find out that Michigan has stopped the use of methadone six months ago. We also have another classic. He goes home to his family and his mom doesn't recognize him because he's so strung out looking Mm -hmm. moment, which is one of my least favorite moments. So they take him to a Salvation Army. She drops him off. He does 28 days. He says, at age 24, I was totally clean for the first time since I was 11 years old. 
He calls Flea, tells him how he's doing. He goes, I knew I was good because I didn't want anything from him. I just wanted to check in. Do you think that's true? No. But he goes, a few days later, Flea called me. Do you think you'd want to come back here and maybe play a couple songs and see how it feels to be back in the band? And so he goes back and they write, fight like a brave. When I got back to LA, within two months, I was shooting heroin and cocaine again. My sobriety hadn't stuck for a long time, but now I knew that there was a way out of the madness if I wanted it and if I was willing to do the work to get to it. I'd been given the tools. I just didn't want to use them yet. So right after this, he also meets on her 16th birthday, a young actress named Ioni Sky. Do you know what she's from? She's from Say Anything. Yeah, I know. Okay. She's very beautiful. Gorgeous. I mean, there's a picture of her bazungas in this book and they are perfect. Top tier. <laughs> I was like, dang. Anyway, so he meets Ioni on her 16th birthday and they start dating. I have to wonder when the photo of her bazungas are from. Yeah. Is she 18 yet in the photo? I hope she's 18. Because I was turned on. (laughs) (laughs) So he decides that 50 days was a good number to... He is doing a ton of drugs and hanging out with Ioni, who is young. And it's so bizarre that her parents are condoning this. He would smoke dope and then we'd cuddle up in bed and read books like Interview with the Vampire and Catcher in the Rye. And it's like, was this her homework? Well, the thing is, she didn't really have parents. Her dad was out of the picture and her mother Enid was a beautiful hippie with blonde ringlet hair. This is also when Red Hot Chili Peppers starts getting recognized a little bit. He says it was really interesting because they had not had a music video or a radio hit, but they were getting recognized on the street from shows. So it's starting to happen. And then they tour for Freaky Styly and finally make some money. They come back and they each make $22,000. And the big deal is that it's not to split. It's for each of them. Obviously, Anthony goes on a bender. He actually gets a house and he asks Ioni to move in with him. Ioni's like, I can't. I'm 16. My mom said no. So how does he get around that? He talks to the mom. He had gotten this house. He didn't have any furniture. He used watermelons to make candle holders and went on a bender in his bathroom. So he had bloody arms and watermelon candles all over the place. And Ioni shows up and then her mom is close behind and he's like, I'll just go talk to your mom and get her to let you stay. And he does bloody and high and crazy. And the mom is just like, okay, keep her. What? I just feel like to have blood on you and win over a parent. My God, They also start getting some K-Rock recognition, which ends up really helping to put them on the map. Hillel at this time is not doing well. Everybody thought that Anthony would be the person they knew to die from drugs, but Hillel himself was actually doing much worse. He was in a bad place emotionally. His girlfriend had left him. So they go on a European leg of the tour for Freaky Styly. And Hillel can barely make it through. And they're like, normally we'd all do drugs and we go out and we'd pull it together, but he'd be alone the whole time. He was reclusive. One show, he was like, I can't do it. And they begged and pleaded. And finally he went out there and they're like, he couldn't do it. He had to get off the stage. And then at the next show, he's like, I'll do one more, but I have to go home. So then when they get home from this leg of the tour, he and Anthony, as soon as they land, basically go straight to their respective drug dealers' houses. They both go on their little benders. A little bit later, Anthony gets home and Ioni is there to tell him that Hill has overdosed and died. And he does not take the time to acknowledge it here. So he, in real life, barely acknowledges it. Him and Ioni go down to Mexico for a couple of weeks and just hang out there. He can't bear to go to the funeral. But the way he handles death throughout this book is shocking. Hillel barely comes up again in the rest of the book. I mean, he cannot deal with it. I think in... RHCP lore, Hillel is such a present conversation always. 
And so the fact that he barely comes up in this book again was so shocking to me. I think he has a lot of guilt. He says, people associated me with being responsible for Hillel's demise at age 25 because my own addiction had started so much younger. His family tried to say that I was the bad influence. It was kind of ironic because I never blamed anyone for my own drug use. And I had tried to introduce Hillel to the idea of getting well. Well, one of the things that's interesting is I do think there's somebody that Anthony Kiedis could blame for his drug use. And it's his dad who got him addicted to drugs before his balls dropped. But also, I do think he probably does feel a lot of guilt. But I've noticed that too. He does not have the capacity to handle grief. He barely talks about him. He writes poems. I think it comes out in his lyrics. So Jack quits the band almost immediately. He's like, I don't want to be a part of this. My friends are dying. I don't like this. Because clearly Anthony's in terrible shape and next up Mm -hmm. to go. They introduce Anthony to a sober person. Bob Timmons. Here's an interesting thing. He sort of mentions this a couple of times. But he has like this real independent streak. The first time he got sober, one of the reasons that he fell off the wagon so quickly is because he just like didn't know other sober people. And he has this real issue with relying on people. And he like kind of has to be front of the pack leading things. He refers to himself as an alpha a lot in relation to other people. I mean, there's just like really no surrender in him until way, way, way later. But Bob Timmons is like, you should go to rehab. It's going to cost $10,000. And he's like, I only have $10,000. And he's like, think of it as, an investment. I think your life is at stake. Maybe one day you'll be able to make another 10 grand if you spend 10 grand now. But if you don't, that might be the last 10 grand you ever know. He was getting to the point where he was like, no matter how many drugs I took, I couldn't even get high anymore. And I think that freaked him out. So he goes in, he gets sober and he learns about sobriety this time. He learns about doing the work. He has a lot of really beautiful passages about like the humanity in rehabs and what it is to go in there and recognize the problems that you can't see in yourself. You can see them in other people and knowing that the way your heart goes out for them, your heart needs to go out for yourself. So he gets out of rehab after 30 days and he actually goes on to stay sober for about five and a half years. So this is a very successful run for him. Learning about sobriety as well as practicing it was a real game changer. And he had a lot of support. I think after what happened to Hillel, everybody was like, we need to get our friends sober and we will be there for you. So there's room in the band for a drummer and a guitarist. Hillel was a guitarist and then Jack, who quit, was the drummer. So they hire a guy named DH as the drummer and this guy named Blackbird as a guitarist. Then they meet this guitarist named John Frishanti, who is one of the best rock guitarists in history. Not then. At that point, he was like 17 years old, but now is known that way. When they met him, he was just a fan of the band. And they heard him play and they were like, holy shit. So they fire Blackbird and this conversation, I really wonder what the actual conversation was. So Blackbird says, you motherfucker. And he goes, come on, Blackbird. It's not me. It's the situation. I'm just the messenger here. And Blackbird goes, you motherfucker. I'm going to burn down your house. And he goes, Blackbird, don't burn down my house. It's a band decision. It didn't work out. It's not us or you. It's just the situation. And Blackbird says, all right, all right, I accept. Just so long as you can accept that I'm going to burn down your house. There's a lot of firings. He and Flea kind of take turns. There was one earlier where they set up a game of croquet on just someone's lawn and thought that they could just like play croquet while they fired someone. They get John Frusciante in and then DH also has a drinking problem. And I guess his drinking problem isn't as well received as everyone else's drug problem. And he starts missing things. And so they are like, look, it's not going to work out. So they fire him and now they're down a drummer. And then they end up hiring this guy, Chad. I am obsessed with Chad. Chad is (laughs) my favorite person in this entire band. They talk about the way he shows up. Someone tells him like, oh, there's this guy, Chad Smith. He's the best drummer you've ever heard. They let this guy come down to audition. We're waiting and waiting for him to show up. And he was late. I went outside to see if anyone's there. I spied this big lummox walking down the street with a really bad Guns N' Roses hairdo. Some clothes that were not screaming. I've got style. I'd already decided against this guy based on how he looked, but he came in and we were all business. 
there are the drums. Get ready to play. You've got 10 minutes. He gets down and he outplays everybody. Flea can't keep up with Chad and Flea is supposed to be leading it. And then they tell him, listen, you can be in the band, but you have to shave your head. We hate your hair. He shows up the next day with and goes, I'm in the band, but I won't shave my hair. And they're like, all right, we respect that decision. But Chad is in the band. Is he in the band to this day? I don't know. He's in the band till the end of the book. This is like 1985, 86. He's in this band for the next 20 years. I don't know that him and Anthony ever have a conversation. All these band members come and go and come and go. And then Randall will be like, so Chad was there. And I'm like, Chad is still here? <laughs> How could Chad be here still? Chad Smith, 1988 to present. They have not yet met. I mean, aside from Anthony Kiedis and Flea, he's the longest running member of the band. He's a core member. Again, I want to say like Anthony is such an unreliable narrator because throughout the course of this band, at one point, Chad and Flea go to do a private project. And then they eventually get Dave Navarro. Dave Navarro and Chad go to do a project. So I think Chad got along with everybody but Anthony. But Anthony is like, everybody hated Chad. Nobody knew what to do with Chad. And I'm like, I don't know. Everyone else was making music with him. Yeah, it seems like a lot of people liked Chad. Him and Flea, I think there was some distance. Flea was going through his own shit. He was going through a divorce at this time. Flea was going through some shit, and it seemed like Anthony really didn't care. So Anthony becomes really good friends with John Frashanti. And they have a really interesting friendship because Anthony loves John. He goes, John and I start to slowly but surely become the kind of friends who would spend every single day together and then go home and call each other and say goodnight before going to bed. When we wake up, it was, good morning, what are we going to do today? John said to Anthony pretty early on, show me anything and I can play it. And so Anthony started bringing him lyrics and John would just come up with the whole song just looking at the lyrics. He could play anything in a few minutes. And they had like this beautiful friendship and partnership and musicianship together that Anthony thought was like everything. But Anthony used to bust his chops. Anthony at this point is probably 25, 26. And John was 17. Again, age is just a number out there. He was always busting his chops for being so young and inexperienced and calling him greeny and green and like just a lot of nicknames, a lot of razzing. And I guess it was really hurting John's feelings, which Anthony did not realize until much, much later. He says, John and I recently talked about the fact that when things wouldn't go my way, I'd ignore him. Okay, this guy's acting in a way that I can't appreciate. And without him having an idea of affecting my sense of well-being, so I'll ignore him until the feeling goes away. That is such a therapized version of what was happening. But he goes, it wasn't a healthy or communicative way of dealing with stuff. But you have to remember that John went from being a 17-year-old unrecognizable kid to being in Red Hot Chili Peppers. He was equally, if not more, abusive to the people around him. So apparently in this next year, he goes on to talk about how John, I guess at 17, is now in a rock band. People would come up and be like, hey, John fucked this girl last night and then kicked her out in the middle of the night. They were like, really? He's nice to us. So I do think John had a bit of an identity crisis and who wouldn't? So they end up making their first record as this version of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. It's called Mother's Milk. It is pretty good. He says, we didn't finish that record and say, this is our best record ever, but I didn't feel bad about Mother's Milk. So they also go on tour for Mother's Milk in September 89. They go on a year long cycle of touring. Their venues are getting bigger and bigger. Their popularity is getting higher and higher. They get to use a full fledged tour bus as opposed to just a van. He also on tour meets a woman named Carmen who becomes his girl of the year. He has this pattern of he sees a girl and he goes, that's going to be my girlfriend. And then he just decides he's in love with her no matter how turbulent or toxic their relationship is. Carmen was absolutely fucked up. She would panic about everything. She was constantly beating him up. Screaming at him. Just destroying everything. And also we don't know what he put her through. Oh, hell. I would still take Carmen over Anthony. Same. He eventually, after a year, got rid of her by buying her a ticket to go model in Italy. And I guess it was a one-way ticket. So Mother's Milk does pretty solid. By the end of the tour, it actually goes gold. It was their first ever gold album. And they also, it turns out, have a clause in their contract with EMI that allows them to leave at this point. 
And because of the heat that they've generated, other labels are coming a knocking. Sony basically says, we'll throw any money at you that it takes. Yes. And so they're like, fuck it. We're going with Sony. And then they get a call from the head of Warner and he's called to congratulate them on their mega deal with Sony. And then they were like, can we get out of the deal with Sony and go with Warner instead? Like he seems like a real stand up dude. So they end up going with Warner instead. They get so much money to sign with Warner that they each go buy a house. They get $1 million each in 1990. This is a really important marker in the book because he had been on and off homeless essentially up until this point, and now money is never, ever an issue again. Even through relapses, even through anything, there is just never, ever a need for money again for the rest of his life. The success is not great for everybody, though. John Frashanti, for example, is not loving the fact that they're, by the end of this, playing bigger and bigger sold-out shows. Then they go on to make their next album, their first album with Warner, and they get Rick Rubin to produce it, who is a pretty legendary producer. They get a giant house in LA, trick it out so that every room is its own recording studio so they can do all the parts separately and stuff. They spend over a month secluded up in this weird mansion, except Chad, he (laughs) won't stay in the mansion because it's haunted. (laughs) It's like this incredible experience where everybody is like at the height of their creativity. Everybody's vibing. They're just waking up, eat, breathing, sleeping, the music. They have this like shared woman who comes over a couple times a week and has sex with all of them. He says it's very chill and it's not degrading. And he knows because John wouldn't have sex with somebody if it was degrading to them, even though we did just hear a story about a time that John was kicking women at his apartment in the middle of the night for fun. So they're writing all the songs for the album that will be Blood Sugar Sex Magic. And one of the songs comes from a brief relationship he had with Sinead O'Connor, where they like see each other at a festival and he becomes obsessed with her. He writes her this handwritten note where he's talking about how much her music impacted him. She later goes on to have Nothing Compares to You. It blows up. She moves to LA. They run into each other at the grocery store. She's like, I still have your note. They start dating. She has a kid. They're all hanging out. They're playing house. She never has sex with him. It's very emotional, spiritual. They're connecting, they're connecting. He's writing her poetry every day, leaving mixtapes for her. One day, she just stops calling him back. And he doesn't know what to do. He's freaking out. He keeps writing her songs and leaving them at her door. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, he claims, he gets this message on his machine. Hey, Anthony, it's Sinead. I'm moving out of Los Angeles tomorrow, and I don't want you to call me or ever come by before I leave. Goodbye. And he's like, I have no idea what happened. I just had to move on. I would love to hear what happened. I bet that it was not nothing. At the end of the Sinead thing, he goes, at the same time, I began to question myself and wonder if I was stuck in repeating my father's pattern of hopping from flower to flower, the girl of the day thing. I certainly didn't want to end up like Blackie because as exciting and temporarily fulfilling as the constant influx of interesting and beautiful girls can be, at the end of the day, that shit is lonely and you're left with nothing. Um, I hate to break it to him. (laughs) Yikes. Blood Sugar Sex Magic thrusts them into public consciousness. Give It Away becomes a radio hit. Under the Bridge becomes a sensation. They end up booking this enormous headlining tour with Pearl Jam opening for them and the Smashing Pumpkins. But Flea is in a bad place. I guess he's just been in a bad place. It's hard to exactly pinpoint what place Flea is in because Anthony doesn't seem to care that much. But John is unhappy when they leave the house. I think he really thrived in the creative environment of being secluded. The second they left, he had a hard time getting back to real life. I do want to take a moment. This line I think is really nice where he talks about the success of Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Anthony says, we didn't sell out. We didn't change what we believed in to reach more people. We just did it. Which I think is a really nice sentiment because they didn't. They really stayed true to their vibe. John, however, saw our newfound popularity as a bad thing. I feel like this is one of the times that he does kind of acknowledge the effect he has on the rest of the group. And he highlights pretty perfectly 
that this tour was control freak Anthony and hater of this experience, John. He does a lot of reflecting and being like, I recognize now that I always thought that if everyone just behaved the way I thought they should, everything would be perfect. And it's like, Anthony, why would you think that you have any sense of how people should behave? John is miserable. He brings his girlfriend, Tony. He becomes very secluded, cocooned. The band is distancing themselves from one another, but their success is rising. And he's like, it doesn't matter what we do. The more John hated it, the bigger we got. And then for the West Coast tour, they ended up getting Nirvana to open for them. He also goes, at this time, I was dating Sofia Coppola, another one of my unfulfilled attempts at a relationship. She was by far the coolest girl I'd gone out with. But clearly not good in bed because he would have explained it to us if she was. So tensions are reaching an all-time boiling point with John Frishanti. They get SNL and John plays under the bridge in a different key. He now is like, I think John might have been just on a ton of heroin and didn't know what was going on. But then they also were like, is John doing this on purpose to make us look bad? But he goes, it doesn't matter how badly we played that song. Sales went through the roof. We've never been bigger. Well, I think that people think they were doing something cool on purpose. (laughs) They go overseas to tour more. By Japan, things had fallen apart. He goes, we hit Japan in early May 1992. It's strange because John thought that we had all worked out our differences by then, but I still felt that we weren't close. He was still in his cocoon with Tony and he was exhibiting some strange behavior. And right before their last show in Japan, John quits and then they end up begging him to come out and play that show. And he does, but the vibes are terrible because he's not in the band. The band is like in flux right now. Anthony goes on this like weird month-long trek through the jungle. And then they're able to get Dave Navarro from Jane's Addiction. He actually reminds me of another famous spider from School of Rock. He seems like a real sexy boy. Yes, that's exactly what he is. I wonder if that was literally based on him. So at the end of October in 1993, here he falls in love with his next girl du jour. Jamie. Jamie Richard. He was actually a famous supermodel. But something else also happens around this time. He has to get his wisdom teeth out and they give him narcotics. And boy, oh boy, is that the start of a slippery slope. He woke up and was like, give me all the Percocet you had. He was like, by the time I got home, I'd taken all 25 Percocet prescribed to me. And the second I got home, I grabbed my keys and my cash and I went downtown to cop. At this point, he's like a recognizable celebrity. Every time now he's getting pulled over, the cops are like, oh, Mr. Kitas, I'm so sorry. Be careful. This is a bad neighborhood. You might run into drug dealers. There's months where he's acting erratic and people don't really understand what's going on. Because he had been sober for five and a half years and I think they thought the worst of it was over. So when the signs of him using start creeping up again... Everybody doesn't want to believe it's true. So there's also been a huge gap between records at this point because of the big tours and then the changes in bandmates. So he's back on drugs, but they're like about to get back in the studio. They get this giant house in Hawaii. They're trying to work on their next album with Dave Navarro. He's struggling. Anthony has a terrible case of writer's block. Chad calls it writer's block Rolling Stone. And he's like, that asshole. It was writer's block. It's just sometimes you can't write. He's like, there's no such thing as writer's block. If you're a writer, sometimes you're writing and sometimes you're not writing. He's like really doing bad Him and Jamie go on this cross-country road trip to their parents. And on this trip, she discovers for sure that he's been using drugs. Because she catches him in the car doing drugs. (laughs) He had this idea that nobody knew. And of course, it turns out she's like, yeah, I called your mom and all your friends and we're all worried about you. And he was like, what the fuck? Yeah, he's like, I can't believe the betrayal that she was talking to my family behind my back. (laughs) That time he gets sober on his mom's couch again. He's detoxed on his mom's couch like three or four times. It's kind of like a Kita's family tradition where he goes home for Christmas. To detox. In 1995 in April, he goes to Exodus and he does another 28-day program. And this one is very helpful for him. It gets him back on track. He comes out. He's able to record one hot minute. Within the year, he's relapsing again. They're touring for one hot minute. It's, I mean, it's going fine, but he's heavily using drugs again. And it begins this really vicious cycle of him going to rehab, 
sobering up using drugs again immediately. That Christmas, him and Jamie break up. He's single again. He's back out on the market. They're touring one hot minute. And then in 1997, nothing happens. They call it the year of nothing. Yeah, he like buys a house and goes to meet the Dalai Lama. Dave is also not doing well. He is drinking a lot and eventually they fire him from the band. Flea floats the idea that maybe John would come back and Anthony is like, yeah, obviously I would fucking want that. They get John back. They keep it low key. There's not this like grand return of John Frusciante. They kind of like soft launch him and it's funny because Flea has to go on a trip but he's like, you guys sit down and hash it all out and they go to the farmer's market and sit down and Anthony's like, anything you want to say? And John's like, not really. And John's like, anything you want to say? And Anthony's like, I, ca- I kind of don't care anymore. And they're like, all right, I guess we're good. And so they call up Flea and they're like, hey, we worked it out by deciding to just move on. So then they get back in the studio to make their next album. And what came out was Californication. This was another gangbusters record. It did super fucking well. He also in New York around this time meets a woman named, he calls her Claire in the book. I think her name is Johanna in real life, but I'll just call her Claire because that's what she is in the book and I think having two Claire's here is more confusing and I like that. He spends the rest of the book talking about what a bitch she was and according to him she was he paid for her to go to school she lived with him for free she wanted to be a fashion designer so he paid to get her a line and here's the thing so they met and he did the thing that he always does where he sees a girl from across the room and goes that will be my girlfriend as soon as they went on an actual date he was like oh she's an addict too and still an active addiction she ends up getting sober and a while later they're reminiscing about their using days and we're like what if we just got high together one time and this begins like another year of him not able to stop he gets sober one last time he starts really committing himself to the program he's like you have to do the work he recommits himself to sobriety and he's like the trick was I have a breakfast group who meets on Wednesdays he's like I can't slip up because who will eat breakfast on Wednesdays and he gets a dog He names the dog Buster and he's like, I gotta stay sober for Buster. I mean... It does end hopeful and sweet about being like, you know, that first year I wanted to use every day and then the year after that, it was about half the time he's like, and it keeps having, but you have to stay with it. It's kind of like a love letter to AA. He like loves the program and he really believes it works. He's like, it's alcoholics helping other alcoholics. Nobody's telling you what to do or how to do it. It's just you live a better life through sobriety and then you hope somebody will see it and say, hey, why is that guy happier now? It's a really nice sentiment at the end. So in the end, what do you think of... Anthony Kiedis. I think he's one of the most selfish men on the planet. At one point during him and Claire's breakup when he's still using, his best friend and like tour manager is married with a baby and he invites them to come live with him in this giant house. And he's going on these binges and these benders and everybody's like, you need to go to rehab. And one time he's in a hotel and he goes back to get some cash and everything's gone from the house. And he's like, what the fuck is happening? And he realizes that in a heroin high, he had told some real estate agent he could sell the house if he wanted. And so they must have just like packed up everything and sold the house and he didn't even know. And he doesn't even mention the fact that there was a newborn baby and his two parents living there. There does not seem to be a lick of, oh, I hope those people are okay. He's like, where was my suits? Yeah, even in the book, he doesn't say where that family went, if they knew, what happened to them. He's selfish in a way that's hard to believe, even in his healthy, sober, writing the memoir mind. I do think he's probably pretty charming. I do feel like he reminds you of like your little brother's best friend. He has like a real boyishness to him and I, I do relate to what it is that drives him which is just like hanging out with your buddies. I do think he's inherently selfish. I do think he wants to be good and that's what's endearing. I think that it is like an active effort for him. So he talks a lot about like in his early days, the way that they would fuck with people. He has so much remorse. I don't think he understands the specifics of it, but he does feel really bad that he fucked shit up for so many people. Like he talks about how he used to like dine and dash all the time at, and then he started going back to like give them money and it's like well 10 years later those waiters aren't still there still so it like 
doesn't really matter. But yeah, but he does have a lot of sentences like, God, I was an emotional terror at this point. I was ruining people's lives. He has these sentences, but I do wonder if now that the addiction's gone, but he's still like a rock star, if there's any hope that he could become a good person. Yeah. I think it's too much of a double whammy of selfishness that's like allowed to be so. He has this one line right when the Red Hot Chili Peppers took off where he says that fame hadn't really affected him and he remained humble. And I was like, what? (laughs) No. I don't hate him. I do think he's, but I do think that this is a really interesting book. I think that selfishness gives way to like a deep honesty because he doesn't know what he's doing is wrong. There's nothing that he won't say. He's not trying to protect himself because he's like, I'm perfect. I can do no wrong. So it's like kind of an entitlement that he's like above judgment. I mean, it was a wild ride. Anthony Kiedis wrote a really fascinating memoir. He's written some absolute bangers. I would love to see him in concert. And he is a lunatic. We will see you next week. As always, check out the Patreon. This week we have Fluently Forward, who are so excited. She knows every blind item about every celebrity we're getting into it. Let us know this week what celebrities you specifically want to hear the blind items about. Always check out the wormhole to connect with your other wormies and goodbye forever. Thank you. Goodbye forever. Goodbye till Tuesday. Okay, love you guys.